I knew that anything I was going to believe spiritually had to at least complement and not negate what I knew scientifically. So I started pursuing all kinds of intersections of science and spirituality, science and consciousness, and I really woke up. Like, I got so excited about what I was reading. Welcome to the Art of Humanity. I'm your host, Jessica Ann. This is my podcast where you can listen for fresh perspectives with artists, leaders, authors, and your favorite entrepreneurs. You can explore creativity and consciousness, evolve your business with the art of humanity. Now, here's this week's episode. Welcome to episode 45 of the Art of Humanity. Thank you so much for tuning in to last week's inaugural episode with Eric Davis. I've received so much amazing feedback on the season's launch, which is all about consciousness with a capital C. It was so nice to see this review in iTunes from someone I met in Turks and Caicos this summer. Thanks to Jeff Pulver, who I interviewed on my very first episode. Jeff Pulver invited me to the Caribbean back in July, and I had the chance to meet other like-minded seekers and adventurers. And one such person that I met on that trip is Shira, and she wrote this review. I met Jessica this past summer at an entrepreneurial retreat. Little did I know then that I would meet a brilliant thought leader of today. The Art of Humanity is not only a podcast for our times, but also a concept for the times. Too many people today are missing the target and getting stuck on desire for fame and power, while completely dismissing the importance of authentic human connection. Sometimes it takes a leader in society to guide us back onto the right path. Thank you for being that person, Jessica. Shira from Israel. Thank you so much, Shira, for that review. If you love this podcast, I'd so appreciate it if you went on iTunes right now and left a review. You can also share this show with two of your friends. If you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, or any other podcast player, it should be pretty easy to share. I know on iTunes, you simply click the three dots on the bottom right of your screen and click copy link to then share it with two friends who may enjoy this episode. You can also capture a screenshot and share it on Instagram and tag me at It's Jessica Ann. That's I-T-S-J-E-S-S-I-C-A-N-N. Thank you in advance for sharing. So let's get into it. If you're listening to this, it's not by chance. As is consciousness itself, everything comes from somewhere, from a particular plane, and each plane has its own wavelength, its own luminous intensity, its own frequency, and one can enter the same plane of consciousness, the same illumination, in a thousand different ways. I'm reading this book by Aurobindo on the adventure of consciousness, and I stumbled on this paragraph which feels fitting to read here in this episode. As a human and a believer in things that I can't always see, this paragraph elucidates the theme of the season on consciousness. And I quote, The one essential thing is to open oneself to these higher planes. Once there, each person will receive according to his or her capacity and needs or particular aspiration. And here's the thing, all of the quarrels between materialists and religious men, between philosophers and poets and painters and musicians, are the childish games of an incipient humanity in which each one wants to fit everyone else into his own mold. When one reaches the luminous truth, one sees that it can contain all without conflict, and that everyone is its child. The mystic receives the joy of his beloved one, The poet receives poetic joy, the mathematician mathematical joy, and the painter receives colored revelations, all spiritual joys. If the seeker is pure, he will see through the hoax either way, 
and his little psychic light will dissolve all the threats and all the gaudy mirages of the melodrama. But how can one ever be sure of one's own purity? Therefore, not to pursue personal forms, but only a higher and higher truth, and letting it manifest under any form it chooses, will help us avoid error and superstition. End quote. Mm, isn't that all that we want when we consume content? We want to avoid error and superstition. We want to get it right. Well, today's guest will shine some nonlinear light on just how to get it right, which has shown itself as pure divinity reaching down from the higher planes. I'm so completely humbled by all the smart people who listen to my podcast. A biophysicist actually reached out to me, and I had to Google biophysicist because I'm not so sure what a biophysicist actually does. Apparently, a biophysicist is a scientist who uses physics to study biological systems using an interdisciplinary approach, according to Google. So anyway, he messages me on LinkedIn saying he's a listener of my podcast, and he asked me some questions on the V word, vulnerability, which has me contemplating everything from the cosmos to culture to capitalism to catharsis. And here's my take on vulnerability. It's a gradual chiseling away of the personality, the pretenses and masks that we wear. And it goes very much against our cultural programming to chisel, because we're taught to build, to erect, to grow. The thing about vulnerability is that it allows you to approach life from an authentic place of no agenda, surrender, and contemplation, liberation, individuation. Marshall McLuhan has said that the medium is the message. And this is a podcast, this format. It's the filter that dissolves our exterior. And I use this medium to express ideologies, pedagogies. My guests and I take on multiple lenses so that the senses of possibility can weave its way through the fabric of our humanity. So let's get to today's guest. She's someone I respect and admire. And I actually stumbled on her work on the Gaia Network. If you haven't heard of the Gaia Network, it's a conscious media network that goes beyond the mainstream narrative, empowering an evolution of consciousness. And that's exactly what happened with me. After watching one of her episodes, I sent her an email. And as luck would have it, I found out she lives and works in the same city. This is when I was living in Los Angeles. So after a few clicks of the cosmic computer buttons, I had the divinely guided opportunity to experience her work firsthand. Who am I talking about? My guest today is one of my teachers, Dr. Teresa Bullard. Her work blends science, consciousness, and spirituality as one. She is a physicist, author, international spiritual teacher, and advanced initiate of the Modern Mystery School, a worldwide organization dedicated to the mission of world peace and the awakening of humanity. Dr. Bullard weaves together her formal background in science with her deep training in the Western Mystery School lineage. Drawing from diverse fields of science and metaphysics, she teaches the keys to apply universal principles directly to life for powerful results. Her goal is to empower people to accelerate their progression, activate inner gifts, expand consciousness, and create their ultimate life. Since 2001, Dr. Bullard has been guiding individuals and groups to reach their potential and become more successful in multiple areas of life. Dr. Bullard is the host of Mystery Teachings on Gaia TV, as well as the author of The Game Changers, Social Alchemists in the 21st Century. She's a co-author of several meditation albums, 
and contributing author in several other books and media platforms. In this conversation, we dive into a number of topics, such as what happened when she integrated her formal education in physics with spirituality, how the art and science of alchemy makes us superhuman, how we can work with nature to support the speeding up of our transformational process. We also discuss how the transcendental poets, such as Emerson and Thoreau, help us harmonize with the rhythm of the universe and the flow of nature, how we can use modern-day technology as a metaphor to explain deeper principles, how we're shifting away from materialism into realizing that everything is energy and vibration, why our soul progression is intimately linked to our DNA, and how sacred geometry ties into this. If you like this podcast, leaving a five-star review on iTunes would mean the world to me and help me to gain momentum as I begin this new season. It really only takes a few seconds, so if you can go over to iTunes right now and leave a review, I'll maybe even give you a shout-out in my next episode. Here's episode 45 of season 5, my interview with Dr. Teresa Bullard. To get all of the links and show notes from this episode, go to artofhumanity.io slash episodes. Let's go to the show. Teresa, thank you so much for joining me on The Art of Humanity. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Dr. Bullard, I find your background so refreshing and unique. You have a formal education in physics, yet now live a pretty spiritual life. When you first started, anything that you knew spiritually had to agree with you scientifically. And I learned this because I watched your Gaia series. You explained this in one of the very first episodes. You described that when you integrated the two, you woke up. Can you describe your background and how it has influenced your work today? Sure. So, you know, I really pursued my academic career and physics career as really my priority all the way from high school to college and then into graduate school. But while I was in graduate school, I was immersed in like 80 hours of physics a week. And I found that this actually kind of threw me out of balance because before I had had a lot of diversity, it had sports and a lot of creative outlets and so forth. And then all of a sudden it was just physics, right? And research and homework and study and all of these kinds of things. And so after about a year of graduate school, I found myself not so happy, feeling inside like something really important was missing. And then started questioning, like, why am I even doing this PhD right now? Is this worth the expense of my happiness and well-being? What can I do to find that sense of balance again and that sense of joy and meaning again? And it put me on a search to really create the balance and that sense of well-being in my life. And I had systematically, like a scientist would, you know, to figure out what's the key here. I brought each of these little aspects of life back in that I'd had previously. You know, I brought back in athletic time and social time and creative hobbies and just more balance in my lifestyle. And after about another year, it was helping, but it wasn't the key. And then, you know, one day I was thinking like, well, what's still missing? Because there's still something core to my sense of joy and purpose that is missing here. And the only thing I'd had in my life prior that I hadn't yet systematically brought back in was spirituality. But at that point, I was actually very surprised that spirituality would be the thing because for me, it was always just sort of there on the side in the background informing my personal view of life, my personal philosophy, but I'd never really put it in front. I never really thought it was a major priority. It was just sort of my outlook on life. And yet here it was, it was the only thing I hadn't brought back in. You know, So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to try it. 
but I was really clear by that point after a couple of years of physics PhD and, you know, already having my bachelor's in physics and that was really well and it sold into the scientific way of thinking and the scientific model. I knew that anything I was going to believe spiritually had to at least complement and not negate what I knew scientifically. So I started pursuing all kinds of intersections of science and spirituality, science and consciousness, and I really woke up. Like I got so excited about what I was reading. Especially, you know, it started off with things like how Eastern philosophy correlated with quantum physics principles. I saw the parallels and it even eventually it reminded me of why I even got into physics in the first place, which was really based on a spiritual vision that I'd had. I'd been off on a, a journey to Sedona and through Arizona and I had had this great experience with my mom, you know, out in Sedona and and then we were driving through the desert, and I was just sort of looking up out at the stars. This is when I was around 18. And I remember thinking, like, God, what's out there? It's so amazing. It's so magnificent. I want to know what's out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's so much more going on in this universe than our mundane little lives on this planet. And that was my moment of realizing, oh, I want to study, you know, maybe astronomy or astrophysics. And so that was what set me on that path in the first place to pursue physics was kind of the spiritual inspiration to understand the bigger universe. And so I think that's always been what's driven me was that desire for a deeper understanding of our universe and how it works. And spirituality was always sort of there for me. And the further I went in physics and mathematics and so forth, the more... I was convinced that there had to be some level of intelligence or consciousness behind the universe because it's too beautiful. It's too perfectly tuned. There's too many ways in which our universe has just this harmony and and this interconnectedness. And, And the more I studied, especially of quantum physics, not so much classical physics, but quantum physics, the more you know, would ask questions like, well, why? What does it mean? And how do we apply that to our lives? And unfortunately, in graduate school, I didn't really get to ask those questions. They didn't really want us to get into the philosophy of things. They just wanted us to understand the mathematics, the derivations, the practical, technological type applications, and the basic fundamental science, but not get into philosophical or spiritual type conversations. And so, I think that's what left me so hungry to search for the deeper meaning. And then when I found my way, at first it was just like Tao physics kind of stuff. And then as an experimentalist, I found myself really disappointed. It sounded really good. It felt really true when, you know, when we correlated the sort of ancient philosophical and spiritual teachings with quantum physics, I liked it and it really woke up my passion. But I also felt that it was very theoretical and hypothetical. There was no real practical applications happening. And so then I started to search for, you know, how do we bridge these in a way that brings it into practicality? And that's what ultimately, I would say, led me to studying alchemy and then eventually also the universal Kabbalah and sacred geometry and then in my search, uh, it also led me to the Finding the Modern Mystery School, where I really was able to take a pretty deep dive into metaphysics and hermetic and alchemical sciences and Kabbalistic 
it's very balanced between the left brain approach and the right brain approach. You know, there's the logic and the science, but there's also the spiritual and the mystical. I, I just really felt a resonance with it and it really worked for me. So yeah, that sounds like you've had quite a journey starting with your, I don't know if it was your very first mystical experience when you were in Sedona at 18, but you know, you've had these yearning questions since you were young and you've evolved over time, you know, integrating the logical brain with the not so logical brain, but from your background, you're applying reason to it, which makes it logical, which I find so refreshing because there's not many people in this world that come from that background that you do that want that like cater to that curiosity as you've done. And it's fascinating and it's so needed today because I feel like we're always on the verge of the next new thing. And with quantum physics intersecting with everything that you just listed from, you know, alchemy to sacred geometry, like you are the voice today to kind of discuss all of this. Can we talk a little bit about alchemy and what it is? Because I hear this word a lot and I want to kind of dissect it a little bit because it's like it's this universal like prana life force that runs through us. And I'd love to learn a little bit more about this word and what it means today. Sure. So alchemy is really an ancient science and art. And, you know, it's being used a lot as a, as a buzzword today. So it's kind of making its resurgence in today's culture. But alchemy itself, I think it's important that people realize that alchemy is more than just something like a fusion or synergy or, you know, mixing ingredients together and just seeing what comes out. There's a real process to alchemy. It's a universal formula, I guess, or flow that drives progression and transformation and evolution. And it's about, you know, it's the process that we go through when we're trying to take something from its raw natural state and then extract the pure essence from that natural state and help awaken and elevate and bring it to its full ultimate potential. So whether we're talking, working with an herb or a metal or mineral, like you see in practical alchemy from, you know, Middle Ages and further back even, it goes really to ancient Egypt and probably even goes back further than that, uh, maybe to Sumeria. So there's certainly the practical application, you know, this is where in the medieval alchemy, they, they often talk about turning lead into gold, but these terms are, in a way, they can be taken literal, but they're really more metaphorical where the lead is like the density, the impurities, the faulty programming, you know, all, all the different ways in which we have impurities or limitations that get in the way of the full innate potential. And then the gold would be the ultimate expression of that pure potential where it's, there's no more corruptibility, there's no more impurities. So it's the art and science of how we transform and transmute from a lesser state to a greater state, or from a, a state of corruption and impurities to a state of perfection and incorruptibility. And alchemy is the original science. You know, it, like our modern day science, modern day medicine, pharmacology, psychology, there's so many of our modern day sciences and different branches that have sort of spawned off from that original source of alchemy. You know, when I was in graduate school, it just kept coming up 
as I was on my spiritual search and I was really getting into things like science and consciousness and, and so forth, it kept coming up. Like there was these just synchronicities or someone would mention, oh, you really need to study alchemy. And at first I was like, yeah, no, I don't think so. I'm a real scientist and I have nothing to learn from alchemists who are trying to turn lead into gold. You know, I had this stereotypical <laughs> image in my mind about what alchemy was based on how we're educated, you know, the history of science, for example. And so I just kept pushing it away, but it kept coming. And, you know, I, I had, by then I'd really learned to watch the signs from the universe. You know, I, I grew up really being open-minded and, and being encouraged to be open-minded and pay attention to synchronicity and, and so forth in dreams. And so it just kept coming up. And so finally, by like the third time it, you know, was presented to me and someone saying, you know, you really need to study or, or I really thought you'd like this book or whatever. And it, it, alchemy, there it was again. I thought, all right, it's coming up. So let me just, you know, empty my cup and give it a shot and see what it has to present to me. And I realized like, oh, this is not at all what we were taught. It, it is not just, it's not about trying to just turn lead into gold. It's about us. It's about our spiritual evolution. It's about how do we transform ourselves to become the best potential, not just potential, but like, how do we become superhuman? You know, how do we evolve to the next generation or next evolutionary step of humankind? And this is the ancient formulas and methods for how to do that. And it's very universal. You know, it's, a, it's almost like a natural law or natural um, flow of things. And nature will do it. Mm, the, thing is, mm-hmm. the thing is that nature's, if we leave it all to nature, it's a slow process. And so alchemy is about how do we understand natural law and what that natural flow is? But then how do we bring our creative abilities and our connection to spirit and, and the divine realm, and how do we bring that in and work with nature to support the speeding up of that transformational process? So alchemy is a very, you know, it's based on the laws of nature and working with it, but consciously participating in the process so that we can speed up the evolutionary process. So that, I would say, is kind of what alchemy is. Consciously participating in nature to speed up the process. Wow, that's fascinating. And, you know, if we look back through history, there have been these evolutionary kind of jumps in humanity. And if we go back to the transcendental poets of the time, like they studied, you know, nature. They received insight intuitively through their perception of nature. And I know that Emerson and Thoreau inspired you in the beginning of your spiritual journey. But then this is kind of similar to what I'm going through. So you, you described that you hit kind of a saturation point and you found limitations with it. So you formulated your own philosophy, but transcendental poetry was a part of your process. So when you kind of combine literature or poetry with nature, you can access this divine wisdom that is streaming through us all the time. Is this type of, you know, insight possible today with all of the distractions and the technology? Or is it something that's, you know, maybe a little bit more difficult than it was back, you know, when Emerson and Thoreau were creating amazing works of art? (laughs) But um, (laughs) what are your thoughts on how technology fits into all of this? 
Yeah. So, of course, during the time of, you know, all the transcendental poets, they didn't have the internet and digital technology to be immersing themselves in. But I'm sure if they did live in today's day, they, some of them, at least, Thoreau especially, might have still been one of those kinds of people who would have withdrawn himself from the urban lifestyle and, and gone off, you know, to Walden Pond and, you know, just meditated in nature where the pace of life is a lot slower. And so I loved the transcendental poets. And one of the first like things that really I read that woke me up and that spoke to my soul, I would say, and that was actually in my first year of college, about four or five years before I started getting into all the, the deeper mystery teaching type stuff. And, you know, what they, their, their connection to nature is very similar to what the alchemists of old would do, you know, that the signs of nature and the laws of, of nature and the spiritual principles that are underneath those laws that govern the, the formation of the universe, they're there. You know, it's like it's written all over for us to rediscover again and again and again. And just by connecting into nature, we start harmonizing again with that flow of the rhythm of the universe and the flow of the rhythm of, of nature. And by aligning with that flow, we can start to feel more connected to the spirit, you know, the essence behind all of it. Uh, and in our world today, you know, of course, everything is so much faster, right? Life is moving faster. We're, we're more bombarded with information and stimulus than ever before, probably in the history of humanity. And it's very easy to get caught up in it. You know, it's very easy to get caught up in our kind of human-made artificial world. But I still feel that, you know, those laws of nature and the laws of the universe are holographically contained within all things. They still emerge. And in a way, they're emerging through our digital technologies. So for example, you know, we look at the internet and we live in a world today where we recognize our connectivity. Everything is interconnected. Our global financial markets are interconnected. People connect to each other from opposite ends of the world, all because of technology. And, you know, that reflects quantum principles of entanglement and connectivity. And so even in our technological advancement, we still have the opportunity to use it as a metaphor. I, I think that's really what some of the transcendental poets were doing. They were looking at nature and then using it as a metaphor to explain deeper principles. Well, we can use our modern day technology as a metaphor too. The challenge is whether or not we give ourselves time and space to slow down and just be and unplug from some of it and meditate and not be constantly just taking in stimulus and information, but really allow ourselves to find that inner peace where we can connect on a vertical scale, not just on a horizontal scale. So when I say that, I mean, can we connect with our, our higher self? Can we connect with our connection to the universal mind, to the divine, to spirit? You know, are we focusing inward in order to connect into that greater whole and greater reality? Or are we only connecting outwardly, right? Mm -hmm. And if we're only connecting outwardly through technology and materiality and interaction and so forth, then we're, we're probably going to feel like there's something big missing inside. And in that sense of something missing, 
we're going to constantly keep seeking outwardly <laughs> mm-hmm. to find whatever it is that's missing, but it's not going to be found outwardly, right? For sure. So, mm-hmm. so we need to find that time and space to connect inwardly. Absolutely. And that's what those those poets were really trying to encourage people towards, I think. Yeah, I love it. I call it involution. I don't know who coined that phrase, but I've heard it and it just makes perfect sense for, you Mm -hmm. know, going inward to evolve, you know, without finding that peace and that serenity that Thoreau achieved at Walden Pond. We can do that today. We can tap into nature at any point in time. We step outside, see the sunshine. And it's important to kind of look back to history to figure out where we stand in the natural progression and evolution of, of our humanity. Mm. Who are some people who are alive today in literature that is kind of creating this next paradigm through poetry or literature or art that is inspiring you? And is this called anything new? Are we going to be looking back at this period in time in like 50, 100 years and say, wow, this is the era of consciousness and these were the leaders at the forefront of this multiverse of reality that we're now co-creating so i'm just curious like who, who are <laughs> not to nerd out or anything but i'm totally nerding out <laughs> you know i think yes we are definitely in a time of that being at that precipice of, of the shift into evolutionary leap of consciousness but whether it can be pointing to you know a new form of literature I mean, honestly, what I read mostly these days is is going back to the ancients. Like I immerse myself in the Hermetica. I read Paracelsus. I read Nikola Tesla. You know, I read more the the ancient literature because I feel that there is deep wisdom in those older writings. And a lot of the authors of the early 1900s as well, you know, there's just really deep, deep principles, deep wisdom that was being transmitted to us through those traditions, right? And that's why I love the mystery schools, because it's this stream of wisdom and universal truth that's been with us for thousands of years. But there are times where it is able to flourish, you know, like where the people are open-minded and there's more freedom of expression and so forth. And so usually during those times when these ancient mystery teachings surface, it coincides with a renaissance, a golden age, an age of enlightenment, and today's day. And then there are times where in history, those types of things have been driven underground by various powers that be, whether they're religious authorities or political authorities or monetary, you know, whatever. They get driven underground and with inquisitions and witch hunts and, you know, all kinds of craziness. And when those wisdom teachings are driven underground, they you know, they coincide with a time where we go into a dark ages or, you know, a, a time of great persecution and ignorance and, you know, but somewhere else on the world, they'll pop up, right? So they're never lost. They just have to move around. So we live in a time where we're, I think we're very fortunate to live in this day and age where there's so much accessible to us, right? There's so much there. And yet it's also interesting to watch it because I mean, some of the really popular authors today, they're bringing forward, I mean, a lot of it's not very new, I would say it's been there, right? It's just Mm -hmm. brought forward in a way that maybe works with today's languaging, it's maybe a little more accessible, it's not so coded, it's more in plain, plain writing so that you can more easily understand it, or it's being transmitted through videos and audios like this. 
And so it's now available for all as opposed to only, you know, through secret coded words and metaphors and, you know, so forth. So personally, I still like to study the ancient wisdom because the other thing I find with today's in the literature, it's like anyone can publish now. And that's great because it provides more freedom of everybody to express their ideas. But it's also challenging because there's more to wade through and there's more need for discernment because there's a lot more opinion these days. There's a lot more ego these days, all kinds of misinformation that gets very easily shared and spread. And so, so I think that we want to have discernment. And yet there are certainly those who are doing very good work in today's, today's day and age. So I just think that uh, we want to still use the ancient wisdom teachings as a foundation and then yet bring it into modern day application as a way to really make that leap because, you know, the mystery schools have been preparing for this time on the planet for thousands of years. So they've been expecting it, right? Their prophecies talk about this time. Mm -hmm. So they've been preparing, whether behind the scenes or more in an open context, they've been preparing for, for this time on the planet and trying to preserve those tools and teachings and methods and reminders of who we really are and what our potential is so that when the time came, they'd still be available (laughs) for us to take advantage of it. And so I think they, I personally have experienced that they have a lot of wisdom to share that is very relevant to today, even though it's coming from ancient times. It's very, very needed today to help us guide our course uh, on a better path because there is a lot of misinformation out there today. Yeah, there's so much out there. And my friend Mark Schaefer calls this content shock where, you know, you're just infiltrated with so much stuff and and it's so easy to just consume, consume and not really be a creator, be a conscious creator. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that you read Tesla, Nikola Tesla, and he's famous for saying, if you want to find the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency and vibration. And, you know, as a content creator and, you know, your leader today in the forefront of consciousness, how important is it to really tap into that energy to create from this place and this space of frequency and vibration versus the reading and consuming, which, you know, it's, it's helpful to a certain extent, but then you have to kind of put the books down when you reach that saturation point and create yourself and really tap into your own portal of creating the next paradigm. So going back to Tesla, like how much can we use that quote that he's famous for saying in today's practical application? Yeah, well, I think that quote is very much about trying to shift us away from a paradigm of being so focused on materialism and into realizing that everything is energy and vibration. And this is actually a very alchemical perspective that alchemy is about shifting frequency and it's about raising vibration. And so when we think of things in terms of energy and vibration, now it's not static and it's not about it just being this one material thing. Now it's about what is the frequency and energy and energy can always be transformed into something else. And no matter what our state of being may be, we can always make a shift. And when we combine it with quantum physics and you know some of the like observer effect type stuff, we can tap in to certain frequencies in the, in the quantum field 
and use our consciousness and our will to help draw that down into some sort of manifestation, right? And so, but as you were saying, like, you know, we have reading and we have information that we intake and, you know, we can be learning. And you're right. I I think that there's a point where either we reach too much saturation or, you know, we're just filling our head with useless information. (laughs) One of the things we teach in, in the mystery school tradition is like, the knowledge that we want to be seeking is the knowledge that's going to lead to our progression and helping us know who we are, know our true potential more, know what our purpose is to fulfill. It's not just knowledge for the sake of knowledge, it's knowledge for the sake of progression and for the sake of fulfilling unique purpose in our life, which each of us have. And we say, actually, all of what you really need to know is already inside of you. You just maybe need the keys to helping you unlock what's inside of you and maybe some reminders of who we are and of our greater potential and how the energies of the universe flow. And so it's really important that as we take in the knowledge that we, one, be discerning about, again, what knowledge are we taking in? And two, you know, one of my founder, the founder of the Modern Mystery School, who's my personal a teacher on my path, one thing that he said one time was that if he's reading a book or exploring some new topic, and you know, we're always learning because there's never an end to how much we can grow and so forth. So we're always seeking new knowledge, but we're discerning about that knowledge. And if we open up a book and or you know, turn on some video or whatever to take in knowledge, that it should excite us. If it doesn't excite us within the first few pages, if it doesn't start opening up all of your chakras and like really fascinating you and drawing you in, then it's not really going to support you in your growth, right? Yeah, so, it's so simple of a concept, but yes, <laughs> totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it should come, you know, you take it in, but it should go all the way through you and really be something that gets you into this sort of excited state. And so that's one way to discern, but also... I would say another way to discern is not just does it sound good, does it feel good, does it kind of, you know, a lot of times people just like it because it makes them feel good from an identity place, but what can you do with that knowledge, right? So can you take that knowledge and can you apply it? Can you create results from it in your life? Can you test it in your life? Because we're not going to progress our knowledge if we can't apply it, right? So we have to take in the information, but then put it into application to see, is this true, right? And if it's true, it should produce good results in our life from the application. Otherwise, we're just filling our heads with information that's not really useful. Uh, so yeah, in the mystery school, we're, we're always encouraging people, like, don't just believe it because we say so, right? Like, don't just believe anything because anybody says so. Take the knowledge, apply it in your life, test it, see if it produces results for you. But the tools that we share and the teachings that we deliver are the things that we have seen over the tradition, you know, over the thousands of years of of the lineage. These are the things that we've seen really have worked for people and produced results so long as they actually take it and apply it, not just keep it as information and concepts in their head. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. But. Yeah, definitely. That's great. I think it comes down to experiential living, really. And you were talking earlier about synchronicity and applying the hermetic principles. 
And I'd love for you to briefly explain the hermetic principles as well. It, it kind of leads into alchemy and transformation and all this stuff. So when we're talking about this way to test it, it really comes down to only you know if it's working for you. And through using discernment, you can kind of filter through the lens of your reality. What is the next step for you? Does that make sense? Or is that aligned with the hermetic principles and the modern mystery teachings and synchronicity and everything kind of just gels together in a way that you have to experience yourself to know if it's working? Yes and no. So yes, we have to ultimately find our own results and have our own experience of it, right? If we don't have our own direct experience of it, then it's just purely faith-based. So the mystery school tradition, we want to move beyond it just being about faith. We want to be in knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. We want to go beyond those just faith. And that's only going to come from our own direct experience of things. But when we're first starting out on the path, I also find that we need to have a certain level of trust and faith. You know, you're not going to get to that point where you're really able to produce results if you don't trust it at first, if you don't walk in some level of faith. So for me, as a scientist, I came into this work with an attitude of science, you know, like prove it to me. Mm -hmm. Unless I can see the tangible results, I'm not going to buy it. You need to validate like any of your claims. How can you claim that? Why do you give that amount of a measure of how much of an impact this makes on somebody's life? Where's your substantiation for that, right? So I came in with that scientific skeptical hat on. And over my journey, what I found is I had to learn to listen more to my intuition, but also have that certain level of discernment and skepticism at the same time, right? So there's this healthy balance between just going based on intuition and heart and also having the discernment of like a a little bit of scientific kind of application of let's see the results. And then over time, as I used the tools, as I applied the knowledge, I did start to see results through my own life, right? Through the changing of my inner quality of life. And ultimately, I realized that I became the fruit, right? So rather than seeing outer proof and outer sort of show me the miracle kind of thing, right? It was more like I, me, the transformation of me and the transformation of my level of joy in life, my level of balance in life, my level of ability to deal with the stresses of life from a much more enlightened state, let's say, that became the ultimate proof that this stuff works, Mm -hmm. right? Because we are the ones who are in the alchemical vessel when it comes to things like spiritual alchemy and hermetics. Hermetics says there's seven principles. It would be an entire episode of itself just to get into all the depth of them. But, you know, very briefly, they talk about mentalism, which is the first principle, which is basically saying the all is mind, that everything is about consciousness and awareness and everything in our physicality Everything in our universe is actually the result of this one mind or this universal consciousness sinking it into being or projecting its will or its intent into some field that then allows it to manifest. So consciousness is primary, I would say the first hermetic principle. And then there's principle of correspondence, which is saying as above, so below, as below, so above. And in modern sort of physics terminology, I would say it's kind of like a hologram or a fractal where every part contains the reflection of the whole, that we can correspond things. I love the Kabbalistic system where we work with the tree of life and we can correspond to all these different aspects of the self and of the universe and of creation and relationships and everything that is relevant to us in life. We can correlate it to the different parts of the tree of life and it helps us organize, it helps us make more sense of things. 
And then there's the principles of vibration, which says everything is energy, everything moves, everything vibrates. There's nothing ever static, right? We're always moving. And then with that principle of vibration is also the principle of polarity and the principle of rhythm. So polarity says that there's two poles to a particular spectrum, like hot and cold is a polarity of temperature, but it's all the same thing. It's all temperature. It's just varying degrees on that spectrum of temperature or varying levels of vibration, right? Mm -hmm. And then rhythm is where we have sort of the pendulum swing and it goes back and forth between the two poles. And there's always the ebb and the flow. There's cycles, there's rhythms. And how do we learn to harness that rhythm? How do we learn to shift our frequency at will rather than being at the effect of everything? So to create our reality from an inner state and then bring that into our outer life rather than always being at the effect of outer life, driving our inner conditions or our inner state of being. It's really about being the driver and then realizing. So the other two principles, I believe, are cause and effect and gender. So cause and effect is to realize everything has a cause. This actually is interesting because quantum physics today, they say, well, some things are just random. They like this idea of randomness. Mm -hmm. But in the hermetic principle, they'd say, well, what maybe appears to be random at this level has a cause at higher planes or higher realms of causation that are maybe at higher frequency levels or maybe higher dimensions. And we're only viewing it from this dimension, so it appears random, but there is a higher plane of causation. So it's about learning how to access those higher planes of causation through consciousness and various forms of what we call sympathetic magic or where we can attract things to us. Yeah, I find this fascinating because it really is cause and effect whether you want to call it the law of attraction. I know that kind of gets a bad rap these days, but it really goes to show that like the mind really has a lot of control over reality. And it does. Yeah. But with law of attraction, it's there's a couple problems in that if we just focus on materiality and egoic gain, then we're missing the whole point <laughs> because you can't really create reproducible results when it's coming from ego because it's coming from a sort of a lower consciousness place. We have to achieve a higher state of consciousness, you know, coherence, and that's going to have to come from reaching into that one mind to those higher planes of consciousness. And then as alchemy would say is, is intention, law of attraction, those are just the first two steps. There's all these other steps to the alchemical process So we need to do the whole process, not just meditate and hope that things are going to magically manifest. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a deep and profound way of living and existing in this world. And it's easy to simplify it by using the law of attraction. But like, as you've studied this and explored this in depth and in detail, it's just mind blowing how much wisdom is from the ancients. And really, you can apply it to our everyday life today. But it's not as simple as you say, just meditating and wishing for nice things to happen. So it really is analogous to the chrysalis and the caterpillar, kind of like when you go into these deep states of meditation and find that coherence, the story of the chrysalis and the caterpillar is it goes into this goo state and then the new structure emerges. But the caterpillar doesn't necessarily know what comes next after it goes into the cocoon. And in your book, you write that we're somewhere in the middle of the chrysalis phase between the caterpillar dissolving and the butterfly being formed. Humanity is midway through the process of dissolving the old systems and forming better new ones. And in episode 35 of The Art of Humanity, I interviewed Richard Rudd, 
who describes a similar analogy in the 55th Gene Key, which is the path of the Homo Sanctus, the blessed human. He describes that much of our current human DNA must be phased out in order for a new form to be constructed. Therefore, over several generations, we'll see a great number of old patterns leaving our world. Is the caterpillar and butterfly analogy similar to the dragonfly in the 55th Gene Key in that no one knows exactly what will happen next? Yes. So I will first of all admit that I haven't researched Richard Rudd's work in that great of depth to be able to comment if it's exactly the same. I did start reading. I mean, I think his stuff is pretty fascinating. And I did start reading about the 55th Gene Key that you were mentioning, but I still have a bit more to dive into it. But so far, what I see in the book on that, that there is definitely similarities. But what I will also say is that with the DNA, like let's go to the caterpillar becoming the butterfly and being in the chrysalis stage, the DNA for the butterfly was always there from the beginning. It's the same DNA that formed the caterpillar. So it's not really a genetic mutation, right? It's more what we would call an epigenetic shift. So the DNA is the same, but there's somewhere in there, which I think the 55th Gene Key also talks about somewhere in there for eons, there's been this code within the DNA of humanity that is almost like a timer that goes off at some point. And when that timer goes off for the caterpillar, it's like, oh, it's time to slow down. Let's go build the chrysalis and let's take a little nap. And it's nature, right? So there's this switch all of a sudden that, that goes on and it's like, okay, now we need to go into the chrysalis phase. And of course, the caterpillar doesn't know that it's going to all of a sudden break down inside that chrysalis and become a butterfly. So at a conscious level, it doesn't know. But at an innate level within the DNA, it's already in there. And it's just an epigenetic switch where some part of the DNA code gets turned on. And that's what then starts to catalyze this whole metamorphosis process or this whole transformational process. You know, even though the caterpillar doesn't know what it's going to become and the cells of the caterpillar go into battling it out with what they call the imaginal cells or the new sort of butterfly codes that are coming in, because at first they think we're dying here, this goo, everything is falling apart. And then they start perceiving that there must be an enemy or a threat to the system. And then they start seeing these new cells coming in with a new code and a new way. And they think, oh, that's the enemy. And they start attacking. And yet the DNA continues to produce this code that keeps making more of these new cells and they're not going to go away, right? And so then they start finding each other and getting strength and numbers. And at some point, the old cells, they have one of two choices. They either die off because they're no longer useful and their old structure is going to fall no matter what because that timer switch has gone off saying it's time to transform. And if they want to survive, those old cells have to learn how to repurpose themselves to orient to the new structure and the new imaginal cells and the butterfly structure that they're building. And yet they can still use their innate functionality and skills to align with the new system and support the new system rather than trying to attack it. So for example, a digestive cell can still be a digestive cell. It just has to orient itself with a new structure. And then meanwhile, there's these new cells coming in that are going to create the color and the wings and, you know, all these other asks that the caterpillar didn't originally have. And so that's what we're going through. You know, if you look at our world today, it's like, 
we are in the chrysalis, you know, everything is of the old structure, the old system and how it was working is falling apart. And it's very much being challenged by the millennial generation and by the cultural creatives and by the people who are waking up to higher levels of spiritual awareness, consciousness, environmental awareness, like all of these things we are saying, no, we have to change. We have to transform. It's not okay anymore to keep going with this old system that was not really caring for the bigger whole. And so that transformation is definitely going to happen. How, what kind of butterfly we're going to turn out to be is definitely a big question from our perspective because we don't know how it's going to turn out to be, but it is within our DNA, right? The pattern is already there and we just need to remember that and wake it up within us so that we can get aligned with what it is we're meant to be doing. Good thing all butterflies are pretty beautiful, so (laughs) it'll all work out in the end. Sometimes they become moths, though, too. <laughs> so. That is true. But that's the darkness not transmuted yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you described that there's like an epigenetic shift and we need to orient ourselves with this new structure. And this is all related and linked to our DNA. Why mm-hmm. is our soul progression intimately linked to our DNA? Well, so from a metaphysical place, I would say that our DNA is not just what science calls our DNA. Science calls our DNA the deoxyribonucleic acid, and it's this blueprint for life, and it builds up the physical. But really, three to maybe at most 10% of the physical DNA code that science knows about, there's only three to 10% of it that's actually building the proteins that build the body. So there's this whole other, at least 90 to 97% of our DNA that science still does not understand what it does. And wow, those, wait, say that again, 90%? 90 to 97, depending on how you look at, you know, there's this portion called exons, which are the parts that build the amino acids that build the proton or the proteins. And then there's introns. And then there's this other thing now they're calling intergenic DNA that kind of, uh, I think works more with the epigenetics and which, which genes are turned on and which genes are turned off and how much of our DNA potential are we expressing and how much are we not, how much of it's positive, how much isn't, right? And so the epigenetics is basically like the old paradigm used to be you're slave to your genes and you're born with a, a set of genes and that's you know going to determine everything from how you look to your personality to what your aptitudes are and that's it. You just have to accept it. The epigenetics is saying, no, we're not slaves to our genes, and maybe we can't rewrite the DNA code, but we can certainly turn on and turn off those switches, you know, so we can turn off the switches to maybe not so positive expressions of our DNA, maybe like disease and stuff like that that might be there. And we can turn on the switches to potential that is there that could lead towards superimmunity or heightened perception and inherent gifts that are within us that maybe have just gotten turned off. And those epigenetic switches, they are responsive to our environment, to our diet, to our lifestyle choices, to our attitude, to our emotional state, right? And to our spiritual practices. So we can turn on these switches by choosing to live a healthy lifestyle, by choosing to have a spiritual practice, by choosing to keep a positive attitude, by having the right resources in our life so that, you know, if we get emotionally stressed, we have good ways to discharge that and bring ourselves back into a state of balance and peace. And when we do this, we're then providing the right environment for our body and for our DNA 
to be in more of its optimal expression rather than in its negative or contracted expression. So, yeah, we have a choice in how we express our DNA potential. And that's why I would say then our soul's progression, so there's the physical aspects of it. And in metaphysics, we would say there's also a spiritual DNA. So there's physical DNA and spiritual DNA. And in the ancient Western mystery school tradition, the DNA, it wasn't called DNA originally, it was called the blueprint for life, which was oriented around the tree of life from the Kabbalistic system. And the tree of life is also called a blueprint for life or the map for life. Interestingly, the tree of life is a sacred geometric structure that is sort of inherent within the physical DNA structure. So from a metaphysical place, we'd say the tree of life is actually our true DNA. And then the deoxyribonucleic acid or the RNA, they just sort of, they're molecules that bind around this sacred geometric structure to form our physical DNA. And so our soul and our spiritual potential is also programmed within that DNA. So it's not really, I wouldn't say our soul's progression is is dependent upon our DNA. It's more like as our soul progresses, as we develop ourselves at a spiritual level, and as we turn on more of our consciousness, we start creating the right conditions within our lifestyle that helps to turn on more of the potential within our DNA. They go hand in hand. They work together. It's like we can't really separate them as much as science would like to try and separate them. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's mind-blowing. I love it. And epigenetics is a pretty new science. I mean, this stuff has not been around that long. Yeah, it's been maybe since the 80s, I think, but it's becoming more commonly understood, I would say, by people. There's more effort by people, both within the more traditional pharmacology approach and then also within people like Bruce Lipton and Dawson Church, you know, who, who studied epigenetics in graduate school in their professions. They also have this realization that, wait a second, this is all about our choices. Like, let's help people realize that we are empowered to change our genetic expression through our choices and through our lifestyle and through meditation and things like that versus thinking that we're slaves to our genes. So there's been two approaches to how we use epigenetics in our world. And I I personally am very grateful for those scientists who've really come forward to bring a more empowering message rather than just take it into pharmacy, (laughs) big pharma. Absolutely. Yeah. And Bruce Lipton was key when he came out with Biology of Belief. I mean, I read that book a while ago and I mean, that is just revolutionary in terms of evolutionary and revolutionary in terms of like where we're going with our soul's evolution and the future of humanity. So speaking of progression and the metaphysical and physical level, (laughs) what is next for you and where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Yeah, so my big focus right now is, well, two things. So I have the new Gaia TV series called Mystery Teachings that has just launched. It's in season one. So we've got a couple episodes out already. They're coming out every Monday. There'll be a total of 13 episodes in season one. And then we're just starting to make plans for season two as well. And so I'm really focused on that right now with getting the Mystery Teachings up and running and continuing to prepare for the next season. And people can find out about that through mysteryteachings.com. It's teachings with an S at the end. So that's been very exciting because it's really bringing some very advanced concepts from science, looking at where is science at today, and then how does it relate? How does it parallel what ancient metaphysics has been teaching? 
And I especially draw from hermetics and alchemy and Kabbalah and Western mystery school teachings and a little bit of Eastern philosophy as well. But my path is more with the Western tradition. So a lot of the teachings that I've learned through the modern mystery school in my 18 years worth of training with them as of today, and then combining that with the sort of scientific understanding and background that I have and weaving the two together and really showing the parallels between them. And then also I find that the ancient wisdom teachings, when we can understand them as a a guideline and the metaphorical language that they work with, and if we then look at, okay, where is science at today and where is it getting stuck or what's it missing in terms of being able to progress to the next level, there have been some things that I've really seen. Well, these metaphysical teachings can offer some insight. If scientists wanted to look at these insights, how might it help propel science to the next level, just like Nikola Tesla said, you know, the day that science begins to look at non-physical phenomenon versus just physical phenomenon, it will make more progress in one decade than in the entire last century or whatever. I love Um, that quote. It's so good. (laughs) Yeah, it's a really good one. So that's definitely one of my big focuses is trying to help bring those forward, but in a way that also really honors science, because there's a lot of people out there these days who say, well, science proves this and science proves that. And it doesn't really, it's more like maybe there's parallels and there's supporting evidence, but we can't say it's a proof. So I'm also trying to do justice to honoring, you know, this is really where science is at and what they would say, but here's what metaphysics says, right? And just be clear about this is a metaphysical interpretation. This is a scientific interpretation and there's limits also. So trying to clean it up and be pretty grounded in the approach as well and really be true to uh, both the science and the ancient wisdom teachings. And then the other big focus that I have is, you know, I'm an international instructor for the Modern Mystery School. So traveling around the world to Tokyo and South Africa and Canada and parts of Europe and all around the United States and helping bring the Mystery School teachings to people, really focusing more also taking my next steps in the higher, deeper levels of those teachings. Uh, It's getting really deep. (laughs) And I actually have been blessed to be able to share some of those really deeper teachings, even in the Gaia series, which has been pretty amazing that the Mystery School has been really open to, yeah, just share. And as we said, though, there's the concepts, but ultimately the Mystery School teachings are very much about the application right? So we can know the concepts, but how do we apply it? And I find that the mystery school teachings really give people the formula for how to apply things, the tools for how to live it, not just know about it. And in those applications is where the real transformation comes. And so through getting our DNA potential activated and awakened, receiving initiation in an authentic mystery school lineage, and working with the Kabbalistic and the alchemical traditions, like there's many different ways that we can really step into the living it rather than just learning about it. And that is where I see huge transformation happen. And with the Mystery School, over many years now, I've seen really rapid, accelerated progression happen in people's lives as they start to step onto this path and apply those tools in their lives. And that's why I dedicated my life to being a teacher of this work versus just continuing to only pursue the science because I really saw it make a difference in people's lives. And that is what brings me joy. So I've really dedicated myself and my journey to helping spread these teachings and these tools so that people can wake up and we can all be part of this collective shift that we're experiencing right now. 
Yeah, thank you so much for bringing this work into the world. It's so needed today. And I will put all of the links that you mentioned in show notes on artofhumanity.io. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Bullard, on the Art of Humanity. Great. Thank you. And oh, there's one other website, which is TeresaBullard.com. And that's just where people can learn about more of my work in general as a whole. Great. So TeresaBullard.com and MysteryTeachings.com as well. So all the show notes will be online. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. You made it to the end of this podcast. This means the world to me. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Feel free to hop on over to my podcast website, artofhumanity.io, for show notes or past interviews. You can also message me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My name is Jessica Ann, and my handle is beingishuman. That's B-E-I-N-G-I-S-H-U-M-A-N. I'd love to hear from you and learn more about what you've enjoyed from this episode. If you really love this podcast, I'd highly appreciate it if you went on Apple Podcasts right now and left a review. It helps way more than you know. You can also share this episode with two of your friends who you think would enjoy it. Let's get the Art of Humanity movement going. Thank you for listening. Until the next episode, evolve your business with the Art of Humanity. Listen, explore, evolve.